Eric, I want to get on to uh, another story here because what we brought you on to talk about here. So what's the story here with Abex Technologies, the company that's sponsoring that new Smarter Markets podcast? Who are the founders of the startup and how did you uh, get involved as an angel investor? Well, this is Josh Crumb's venture and uh, Josh is an ex-Goldman Sachs commodities guy turned fintech entrepreneur, but he's, he's a good ex-Goldman guy. He's not the usual Harvard MBA Goldman idiot. He's a Colorado School of Mines grad, Canadian, good guy. Uh, best known as the founder of Gold Money, which is the outfit that kind of lets you have a, a bank account denominated in gold. So you put your money in and you're basically buying physical gold. So it's backed by physical gold, but you get a, an ATM card and a debit card. You can, you know, go to buy a pint of beer and, and pay for it from your gold money credit card. And it you know gets converted into gold and charged to your account and so forth. So they did the combination of physical gold storage integrated with the modern financial system so that you can spend it with debit cards and so forth. The other founders of Abex are veterans of the futures exchange business, not so much the trading side, but the actual exchange side, the guys who designed Clearport for NYMEX. Tom McMahon is probably the the main founder from that side of the house. Um, And as far as how it came about, Josh emailed me one day uh, looking for introductions, basically. And the email basically said, listen, Eric, I want to, you know, would you take a phone call? Because we're doing a capital raise for this startup that I'm doing, and we have just 500000 left to fill. And I'm thinking, you know, you, you know a lot of accredited investors because of the Macro Voices podcast. If you knew 10 guys that could come in at 50K each, you know, we'd get our five hundred grand and we could launch our thing. So my first reaction, because I get emails like this all the time, was F you. I'm not introducing you to anybody. Uh, I'm not your cap intro broker, you know, piss off. But it was Josh Crumb. So I decided to take the call, mostly out of curiosity, just to find out what the hell he was doing. By the time, to make the long story short, by the time the call was over, my answer had changed to, F you, I'm not introducing you to anybody because I want the whole 500000 myself. And that was the, the, the first interaction with them. So it was on the first call that I made that commitment. After we did the first round of get to know you and due diligence and learning more about it and finding out who the other angel investors were primarily, when I found out Kyle Bass is an angel investor in this thing, Robert Friedland, the Canadian billionaire financier and mining you know, tycoon, is one of the angels behind this. Uh, the other seed investors are all big names like that. Uh, I ended up doubling on my original investment, which took some negotiating because they didn't they didn't want that much in their launch originally. So this was all, I don't know, several months ago, probably six months ago. Um, they were very secretive about their plans uh, before they're launched, like any startup. You know, they don't want to talk until they're ready to do their thing. Their stock is going to start trading publicly in the middle of December. They're targeting December 15th as the first trading date. So now they're doing a publicity campaign, which includes sponsoring a new podcast, which Macro Voices is going to produce for them, called Smarter Markets that I'm going to be hosting. Uh, and they're also kind of, you know, showing themselves to the public. So I'm finally allowed to talk about this, which I'm, as you can tell, pretty excited about. So Eric, uh, on your Macro Voices podcast, you mentioned that these guys were going to supposedly make the market smarter, quote unquote. Uh, You know, I've heard this so many times before. That could mean almost anything. What do they actually do? Like, who are their customers? How are they going to make money? What 
is the kind of secret sauce to their new product? Well, that's a simple question and a good one, but the answer is complicated because it comes in different time frames. I'm focused on a longer time horizon than what they're actually selling right now. So the analogy that comes to my mind, I don't know if you guys know the name Tony Fidel, famous Silicon Valley design engineer known as the father of the iPod and one of the principal designers of the iPhone. So around 2010, Tony decides to leave Apple and go do his own startup. You know, this is the guy that invented the iPhone. So everybody in Silicon Valley is like, okay, what is the new device? What is the, the new thing that Tony is coming up with? How's he going to outdo the iPhone? And eventually they have their big press release and announce what the company's going to do. And da-da-da-da, drum roll please, what is it? A thermostat. And Everybody is like, okay, Tony has flipped his lid. The guy has totally lost it. A thermostat, like the guy who invented the iPhone, are you crazy? What's going on? Well, what really was happening was Tony Fidel is absolutely brilliant. He correctly anticipated that the Internet of Things was going to be a major trend. So the thermostat was just the first product to launch the company. And of course, the company was Nest. They ended up selling that company in an acquisition for 3.2 with a B billion dollars just two or three years later. So needless to say, he knew exactly what he was doing. But at the moment of that introduction, everybody was like, thermostat? Are you kidding? Why am I telling you that story that obviously has nothing directly to do with Avix Technologies? Well, the reason is I think they're basically having their thermostat moment right now with what they're doing. What they're announcing is a new commodity futures exchange that will be based in Singapore, and it will introduce a new physical delivery liquid natural gas contract. And Kevin, I know you know about uh, commodity futures. Physical delivery is really important because it ties the price discovery to the real price of things as opposed to the manipulated price of some index. And until now, there hasn't been any natural gas contract which is actually physically delivered. And it's not trivial to, to do that because natural gas, the, the storage and delivery uh, logistics are fairly complex. So they, they've got this uh, physical delivery natural gas contract, which Okay, fine. That's, you know, a really interesting innovation if you happen to be in the physical part of the energy market and you care about that stuff, which I'm not and I don't frankly care. Um, although I guess it's a big deal to the people that it's a big deal to. They've also got some other innovations immediately, this thing called ID++, which is basically a technical architecture for secure trader connectivity. So, you know, traders use chat groups to talk among each other with about what trades they're doing. Those things have been hacked in the past where somebody's impersonating somebody else and recommending trades. And so they've done like a super secure version of chat rooms and, and ch trader chat kind of tools and, and basic stuff like that. Um, it's all cool. It's, it's great. But I don't think there's any great earth shattering thing here. And I have to be careful because they're a sponsor now of Macro Voices, and I don't want to piss them off because they're very excited about this stuff. I think it's just the thermostat moment where they're introducing this natural gas. I guess there's going to be a gold contract too. To me, it's all a thermostat. I'm focused on the long-term strategy, which I think their ultimate mission is going to be much broader, much more ambitious, and much more exciting. So the reason that I invested is not because they're going to do a new futures exchange 
in Singapore, which should be trading by early 2021. It's because of the plans that they have after that that really got me excited about this. All right. Well, you've got me interested now. So you, you're talking here about this long term. So what is this long term mission you're talking about and that's got you all excited? Well, first, I need to be careful here because what I've told you about what I'm calling the thermostat story is really their whole story in terms of what they're staying, saying publicly, and they're sticking to it. So the rest of what I have to say is me talking. I'm speculating. These are my own thoughts. I don't represent the company. I'm telling you why I invested and what I see on the horizon. Um, you know, And to be sure, too, Nest needed their thermostat. They needed to have a product that was going to generate some revenue to pay the bills until they did more interesting, cooler things. And so does Abex. So the, the natural gas contract, the beginning of futures trading, the stuff that they're doing is all strategic and it all fits into a plan. But as far as what's their Internet of Things vision, uh, it's going to be pioneering the adoption of secure digital bearer instruments as the basis for an entirely new generation of financial markets, starting with re-engineering how commodity futures markets work. And I want to emphasize, I'm talking about re-engineering not just the market in order to you know use some cool technology, but re-engineering the functionality of the market. What we have really today are financial markets that were designed as paper systems, you know, guys with a chalkboard writing stock prices and people screaming out bids and offers and so forth, uh, and people, you know, writing their, their number down on a, on a little notepad someplace. What we've done with financial markets in the last 40 or 50 years is we've computerized those old manual paper systems and we've automated them, but they're the same old tech systems that they used to be. We haven't really thought about how to use technology to re-engineer the functionality of the market and make it do new things that it didn't used to do. And what I see ABEX is doing is pioneering the adoption of distributed ledger technology, particularly, and secure digital bearer instruments in order to completely change the way markets work. Now, there's only one part of that that they're actually publicly talking about, which is replacing the warehouse receipts and the physical delivery of commodity futures with Ethereum smart contracts based on secure digital bearer instruments, thereby allowing true ownership of physical commodities in the form of a fungible digital bearer instrument that can be transmitted electronically. And that is revolutionary unto itself. It doesn't end there, though. That's just the part they're talking publicly about. I'm convinced they have plans that are much broader and in much longer term that they're not talking about publicly yet. So, Eric, one second. We got to step back here because you've thrown out a lot of different terms. And for a guy that was kind of crapping all over Bitcoin, it sure sounds like you've embraced the digital, uh, you know, with these Ethereum smart contracts. What does all this, though, have to do with commodity futures and warehouse receipts? Okay, the important innovation, and it was a, a, a just, and this is my frustration with this whole crypto thing. When the, the guys who invented Bitcoin under the, the pseudonymous name of Satoshi Yakamoto, the, the breakthrough in computer science and the breakthrough in financial innovation 
was the invention of the secure digital bearer instrument, the idea of double spend proof digital cash that you can actually have the equivalent of cash in a computer system and it can't be copied and double spent and it, it truly has the characteristics of cash. That secure digital bearer instrument was just a profound invention. Now, the first application of that invention was to creating these alternative currency systems, cryptocurrencies, which are basically designed to piss governments off. And they're in a contest to see how long they can keep pissing governments off until governments actually do something about it. And it's gone on a lot longer than I expected. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe it'll keep going on. If you remember back to the beginning of this whole crypto evolution around 2012, 2013, a lot of people in finance were looking at it saying, wow, you know, this blockchain thing, not so much Bitcoin itself, but this blockchain thing is going to be revolutionary. They were kind of missing part of this, which is the way blockchain works. It's so inefficient with its proof of work validation system that you, you kind of need to have a currency in order to create an incentive for people to mine it, because if you don't have miners, then the whole thing doesn't work. Um, as far as what, uh, where I think this is ultimately headed, the invention of secure digital bearer instruments is going to completely, totally change the entire financial industry. It's, it's going to be as big to the financial industry as, you know, the invention of the internet or the personal computer was to, to society on a whole. It's, it's a really, really big deal. Now, where does Ethereum which is a cryptocurrency and its blockchain come into this. Ethereum's blockchain can be used to tokenize other assets. So if you want to take a warehouse receipt in the, in the design of, in, and I guess we should explain how warehouse receipts work. When you buy commodity futures, if you stand for delivery, which is you're not just going to settle your contract in, in cash before it expires, but you're actually going to take delivery of, if it's a gold contract, it's 100 ounces of gold, or if it's an oil contract, it's 1,000 barrels of oil. When you close that, secure, that uh, futures contract, what you actually get is a warehouse receipt, which is physically exchangeable, Whoever's got it can exchange it for the 100 ounces of gold or the, the 1,000 barrels of oil or whatever. So it's called a bearer asset, means if you have physical possession of that piece of paper, you've got the 1,000 barrels or you can exchange it for the 1,000 barrels of oil. So if you lose it, <laughs> you're screwed. And it could easily be counterfeited. There's all kinds of problems with these, this paper warehouse receipt system, but that's all they've got. Tokenizing that using Ethereum's blockchain. Now, long-term, I don't think blockchain is the right distributed ledger. That's kind of a, a, a out-of-scope story that I don't want to go down that rat hole right now. Someday, we're going to have distributed ledgers that don't require mining or miners, and they're going to be a whole lot more efficient. For now, the best way to tokenize assets like warehouse receipts is to use Ethereum's blockchain and Ethereum smart contracts. Um, so imagine that warehouse receipt that's good for the 100 uh, ounces of gold or the thousand barrels of oil or whatever. If that's a digital token, first of all, it solves a whole bunch of counterfeiting issues. A major problem that happens with these uh, bearer instruments when you have a warehouse receipt that's good for a hundred ounces of gold. Um, that's like $185,000 worth. So, you know, for one contract. So if it's, if it's 10 contracts, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. People use those as collateral and take loans against them. Well, 
What happens if you're pledging the same warehouse receipt as collateral on five different loans or 10 different loans? You know, they get rehypothecated. You can solve that problem by making it a digital token asset. But the really, really cool implications are that now that token becomes fungible. If, it's, if it has the value of 100 ounces of gold, then presumably it has that, you know, it's exchange, it's, it's redeemable with a particular exchange. Let's say it's the COMEX in New York. But you can easily imagine how other people around the world would be willing to exchange that same token, maybe plus a, a transaction fee, for delivery of 100 ounces of gold someplace else because they can always arbitrage any, any price difference out, back out of that. So if you have fungible warehouse receipts that can be transmitted on a computer, you guys know how airlines uh, hedge their, their fuel expenses. They, as they're selling tickets, they're pricing the tickets based on current fuel prices. And once they sell a bunch of tickets, they have to go and say, okay, how many tickets did we sell? Uh, that's going to end up to, to, to deliver those tickets in order to fly the planes that are going to fulfill the tickets that we sold. It's going to require X amount of jet fuel, so we're going to go buy futures contracts for that many barrels of jet fuel in the futures market now so that we're hedging our future exposure. So if the price goes up, we'll be covered. Well, you could imagine that they could just buy jet fuel as a digital token with some AI-based you know, machine learning high-tech system and you could imagine, you know, airlines code share relationships, passing, you know, fuel credits back and forth, passing uh, airfare credits back and forth as secure digital tokens between computer systems. And then eventually, after that token gets handed around and passed around, maybe it's been owned by five different airlines as a hedging instrument by the time the, the computer systems are done trading it all. When it comes back to the exchange, it gets traded in and actually delivered against for the thousand barrels of jet fuel. You can suddenly imagine all kinds of automation applications because that warehouse receipt is not a physical piece of paper that got FedEx to somebody anymore. It's a digital uh, token in a system that, that allows it to be securely transmitted anywhere in the world instantaneously. So it just opens up all kinds of, of new possibilities. And I got a chance to talk to Tom McMahon, who's the guy at Abex doing the design of all this. And he said a surprise for them was the AML implications, the, the anti-money laundering implications, because what they realized with, was when you originally get that token, you know, if you're trading money, you have to do AML authentication on who's giving you money and, you know, who's got the token. But then the token can be traded by five or six different third parties with no AML requirement, eventually it comes back into the system. Just like if you take delivery of 100 ounces of gold, those gold bars can be sold back and forth to you know a whole bunch of different jewelry guys in New York City. Eventually, if they want to go back and deliver them into the futures market, they have to pay for an assay. They have to, to pay to get the, the gold verified to make sure it's really gold before it goes back into the system. Well, the same way if you had a warehouse receipt for a futures contract that was a Ethereum token, there has to be AML verification to the first guy who bought it, but then it can go all around, be owned by 20 different parties, and eventually the last guy who wants to actually take the physical delivery of 1,000 gallons of jet fuel, he has to be AML authenticated in order to meet 
the legal requirements, but none of the other intermediaries in between need to. And if you wanted to go back, if, if legally, if there was some need for an audit trail to go back and figure out who touched this thing, well, if it's a blockchain, it, there's visibility to all of the transactions, what happened, where, when, whatever. It's much more transparent than any kind of historical you know, legacy system. So there's just all kinds of applications for this. As much as in the, in the early days, I, I guess to, to sort of net it down to what is this about, in the early days of crypto, there were all these guys in the finance industry running around saying, oh, blockchain technology, we're going to do all kinds of things with blockchain technology. You didn't see a whole lot actually come out of that because there weren't many people who really understood how finance systems work, how financial markets work, and who understood the distributed ledger technology that is what underpins these cryptocurrency systems. What ABEX is all about is using these technologies, I hate to call it blockchain technology, but that's what a lot of people call it, using distributed ledger technology to completely re-engineer the way commodity futures markets work to allow them to do things that they never used to do before. That's the part, what I just described, that they're talking publicly about. Now, there's a whole bunch more that I speculate they intend to do because it's obvious to me that they should be, and Josh is a smart guy and his team are smart guys, so I'm sure that's where they're headed. But the, what I just described is as much as they seem to want to uh, publicly discuss at this point. All right, so Eric, like this is so cool. Like, you so you let's just kind of re review this. So, you're the plan is to completely replace these paper uh, warehouse certificates, which of course are all vulnerable to being counterfeited or double pledged as collateral for this kind of shady financing stuff. And it's going to be replaced with completely secure and completely fungible digital bearer instruments. And so, is this the essence of the longer term future you see for ABEX beyond the supposed like a thermostat phase you were talking about for these natural? gas contracts or this uh, trader chat tool it's it's just the first phase i think there's a lot more phases after that they're they're talking about digital bearer instruments for warehouse receipts right now and that's something they're willing to discuss publicly um the rest of what i have to say i just want to underscore is my own personal uh speculation but the analogy here, I think, is Jeff Bezos in 1998 said he was in the book business. He was going to sell books on the internet. And at the time, a lot of people looked at that and said, okay, well, how big is the book business? I mean, how, even if it someday got so big that it was as big as Barnes & Noble, you know, how big is the book business, really? What they didn't realize is that Jeff Bezos was a man with a plan. He only chose books as the first thing to sell on the internet because it was a, a small thing that was easily you know, shipped and it, it, it made sense. Um, the first epiphany that I had with respect to ABEX and what they're doing was when I started thinking this through and I said, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, one of my one of my original concerns was, was uh, okay, they're running this like Singapore-based commodity exchange. It's only going to trade a couple of contracts at first. And I was thinking, well, first of all, you know, that's kind of like CME Group and ICE are the Coke and the Pepsi of commodity futures. So Abix sounded to me at first like it's Stewart's root beer. Like, you know, they're going to try to compete with Coke and Pepsi. How's that ever going to work? And Singapore, why dial domiciled in Singapore? That didn't make sense to me at first. And then I started thinking about how markets evolve. 
Go back to, you know, Kevin, you've been in the institutional side of, of finance for decades. Go back to the old days when we used to achieve leverage entirely by margin borrowing. That was the only way you could get leverage for a hedge fund or any kind of, you know, hot money trading. Then what happened is at some point somebody figured out, hey, wait a minute, you know, commodity futures offer a more efficient form of leverage without the margin interest. So if we invented these stock index futures, we could give the guys that are speculating in the stock market a more efficient way of using leverage. And we could, you know, take over a bunch of market share from the stock market by bringing that kind of stock trading, stock index trading into the futures market. And of course, that was, you know, in the beginning when the the S&P futures contract was first introduced, the idea was the S&P futures contract is designed to track the value of the actual S&P index. These days, I think the S&P index is actually, you know, the price discovery is happening in the E-mini S&P futures contract, and the index is just tracking what's happening in the futures contract. So we've basically seen a transformation of the industry to where most of the hot money trading is in futures because they trade more hours per day and they give you more efficient leverage and so forth. Well, think about a much bigger change for the industry, not just a better way to do leverage, but think about really embracing digital bearer instruments so that everything is a token. When you buy stock, you know, forget about this nonsense. What is it? T plus three. It takes three days to, for the exchange to clear your transaction as if clearing was some monumental task. Why does it take more than three milliseconds to clear a transaction on the stock market? Because the IT guys in the finance industry are the only IT guys left on the frickin' planet who still think that batch processing is a good idea. When I first got involved as a teenager in the computer industry in the late 1970s, we were making fun of batch processing then. And it's finance guys are the only people in IT that still think that's a smart way of designing things. So imagine that we're someday going to get to a new paradigm where the way markets work is totally different. Everything is digital uh, instruments, everything is tokenized, and every transaction happens instantly. There's no T plus anything. It's T plus right now. The, the, you do the transaction, it's over, it's done, you own the asset one millisecond after you, you click the buy button. Now, Kevin, think about this question. Who is in a position that they're able to lead the way, to, to, to guide the rest of the marketplace through a change like that. Go back to my analogy of how we got from leverage with margin interest to leverage with futures. Well, the answer is nobody can do that unless you own an exchange because it's the exchanges that write the contract specifications and get to introduce new products. Investment banks can introduce new derivative products on the over-the-counter market, but if you're talking about exchange-traded instruments, it's only the exchanges. So you've got to own an exchange. And furthermore, if you're talking about the kind of monumental, you know, completely change the face of the industry change that I see coming in the next 20 years, you've got to be an exchange that has a relationship with your regulators 
that they're willing to work with you and think outside the box and be open to doing new things. And then it all, it's like, I, I literally woke up in the middle of the night one night. I said, oh my God, Singapore is engaged right now politically in this big strategic plan to try to benefit as much as they can from what unfortunately has been the collapse of Hong Kong because of China essentially not honoring the 2047 agreement and annexing Hong Kong into China. For years and years and years, we've had Shanghai is China's financial center and Hong Kong was the gateway to the West. Singapore's government wants to take over as much of that gateway to the West as they can. If you're trying to lead this, if you want to be one of the people who's really driving this kind of change, you got to own an exchange and you got to own an exchange in a jurisdiction where the regulators are going to be ready to work with you. And when I thought of this one night in the middle of the night, it was just in my head. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it makes sense. If you're in Singapore, it's a tiny little place where everybody knows everybody. The government has no exposure to the futures, commodity futures business. They want it. And they're going to be willing to work outside the box creatively to create new products. That was just my theory. When I interviewed Robert Friedland for the new podcast, Robert Friedman is a billionaire, as you know, uh, you know, mining tycoon and Singapore-based venture capitalist and financier who's in, he's lived in Singapore for 25 years. He's in tight with the government there. He confirmed in that podcast before I even brought it up Singapore wants this business. And so all of a sudden, it all made sense. It's like, this is why they're putting this in Singapore. This is why they're, they're launching. You know, it's a nat gas contract so that they can own an exchange, so that they're, when they're ready to introduce digital bearer instruments to replace the way most financial transactions get settled and cleared, They'll be in the driver's seat to do it, and they'll have a friendly regulator and a friendly jurisdiction to work in. So tying that all together was kind of when I said, oh boy, that was, that was when I wanted to increase my, uh, my investment the first time. So Eric, that's a fascinating story, and I can see why you jumped all over it when you were given the opportunity. But it's not going to just be for the private uh, kind of angel investors for long, right? They have talk about taking this out and making it a publicly traded company. Why don't you walk us through how they're going to do this and what form this is going to take? Kevin, they're doing a reverse merger in order to get the stock trading publicly, very similar to a SPAC transaction where you've got an existing uh, essentially shell company publicly traded entity that you reverse merge into so that you get uh, public trading capability. Now, my first assumption was, okay, when you do a SPAC or reverse merger transaction, that gives you public trading of your stock. But unlike an IPO, it's not inherently a capital raise. So my first thought was, okay, that must mean that they're going to do a capital raise at the same time. Because normally when you do a reverse merger, the company still needs to raise money. So they, they do a secondary offering and Either it's at the same time or it's immediately thereafter or something. So when I talked to them and I said, okay, how much money, because I'm thinking about, you know, how much my shares are going to get diluted by the capital raise and so forth. How much money are you going to raise in the capital raise after you get your stock trading publicly in the reverse merger? And the answer is none. And I said, what do you mean none? And Josh Crumb told me, he says, I 
don't want the dilution. Uh, we don't need it. We can, with the capital that we've already raised from the angels that we have, and especially with the connections that our angels have in the industry, we've got enough capital, and I don't want to take the dilution of my shares or your shares. We're, we're done. Someday we'll probably have to do a secondary offering to really grow the company to the next level. But for the foreseeable future, no capital raise. That was the second epiphany in my mind, was I said, wait a minute. Because, you know, frankly, Goldman Sachs guys always worry me a little bit. You know, <laughs> is this going to be... Is this going to be one of those stories where the founder's using all of his Goldman Sachs connections and cocktail parties and so forth to get as far as the IPO and maybe a little bit of a, you know, a stick around holding period on his stock and then he can cash out and move on to his next venture or whatever? When I hear that Josh doesn't want the dilution in his own shares and he's not going to do a capital raise, which would normally be the way the founder's get their exit opportunity is, you know, there's an external capital raise that's supposedly to make the company grow bigger, but it's the way the founders get the money to, to, to bail out on the, on the venture. Josh is not bailing on this. This is a man with a plan. Just like Jeff Bezos starting what was supposedly a bookstore, Josh is starting supposedly a natural gas trading uh, exchange. I think his intention is he's launching Tony Fidel's thermostat or Jeff Bezos's bookstore here. I think that Josh intends to spend the rest of his career being the guy who pioneered the adoption of secure digital bearer instruments in financial markets, just the way Jeff Bezos was the guy who brought e-commerce to the world. I predict that Josh will retire a billionaire before he's 50. And I think that this is the last thing he's going to do. It's not just, you know, serial entrepreneur stuff. I think this is his mission. And I think that he's going to see it through. Eventually, what I see this heading to is the redesign of financial markets, not just commodity futures, but all financial markets. Because the concept of a stock market, a bond market, a commodity futures market, these are all things that were invented hundreds of years ago with paper systems. And those paper systems have now been automated and computerized. But nobody has really stopped to think about redesigning the functionality of what the market itself does. So we don't have T plus three clearing. We should have T plus three milliseconds clearing. We should, uh, we should do things instantaneously. We should get away from batch processing. Uh, when I wrote in my book, about my vision of digital sovereign bond markets and why they could fundamentally have a humanitarian impact on society because they would give smaller nations different financing options than they have today. I have to admit, when I was writing that chapter of the book, I was thinking to myself, who have I ever met in finance who either gets this vision or knows how to implement it technically? Nobody. Probably never happened. Well, these guys are not ready to do this tomorrow, but Josh and his team are the first people that I've seen that have, I think, the same vision that I do, which is we need to redesign, not just enhance the, the, the way the computer systems work, but we need to design the functionality of what the market does. And frankly, we need to realign markets with the purpose for which they were originally designed for, which is to facilitate the efficient formation of capital to help society. We need to make the market better benefit society than it does, because frankly, we're facing a crisis in capitalism right now. So uh, 
my vision may or may not exactly match their plan because they're not telling me their plan. It's secret that they won't tell me exactly what's on their mind. Um, they have, though, uh, commissioned me to produce the Smarter Markets podcast for them. Now, the concept of the Smarter Markets podcast is to brainstorm with some of the smartest people in the business. The first episode is Robert Friedland, mining tycoon from Canada, billionaire, incredibly smart guy. Um, the idea of Smarter Markets is to brainstorm and conceive ideas for how we could redesign markets to make them smarter, more efficient, and more effective at actually achieving the purposes for which they exist, which is to better society by providing efficient formation of capital to grow and expand business. We're going to start having those conversations. I am sure that I'm going to get my vision in front of his customers because I'm going to get it all over the podcast. So whether they have my vision or not, they will soon enough. And I want to be clear, too. Josh Crum has never told me any of this stuff that I'm telling you now about redesigning the entire functionality of, of financial markets or you know, having a plan to, to be the, the Jeff Bezos of doing this. I'm convinced that that is the plan that he's on. And I'll, I'll just, you know, Kevin, you've been around the, uh, you know, the industry for a long time. When is the last time that you heard of a Goldman Sachs guy being offered more money than he was asking for and turning it down because he doesn't want to dilute the value of his own shares? It's been a long time. Well, this is when I had my second epiphany. It was when I figured all this stuff out. So I called Josh up and I said, Josh, you're not doing a capital raise. This affects my decision to invest. And immediately his reaction was, oh, if you don't want to invest, it's okay. We found other guys. And I said, no, no, dude, what do you mean if I don't want to invest? I don't want to invest 500000 I I want a million. And his reaction was defensive. He said, you want another million? No way. I can't do it. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm past my dilution limit. I've got several people that are asking me to do this, and I can't. Well, first of all, I wasn't asking for another million. I only wanted to take the 500 and extend it by 500 to make 1 million total. But when he said that, and he's defensive about it, and I'm just thinking, when has a Goldman Sachs guy ever turned down money? Um, he knows that he's onto something really hot here. He doesn't want to dilute it. So I didn't actually intend to mean a million more, but I played it as if I did. And he says, no way. And I said, well, how about if I meet you in the middle at, at one and a quarter total? And, and we ended up at 1.2. So uh, I'm going to buy more when it starts trading. I, I want more of this. Um, I am convinced, and, and I should be really clear too, you know, Abex might or may, might not be who does this. I am personally convinced that we're going to have a revolution in finance where the markets will be redesigned to fully embrace what some people call blockchain technology. I don't call it that. I call it secure digital bearer assets because we're going to get rid of blockchain eventually and use a distributed ledger that doesn't require mining in order to make it much more efficient. But we're going to embrace the best technology to redesign the markets and make it better. Is it a sure thing that ABEX is going to be at the center of that? Absolutely not. It's a speculation. Uh, frankly, Josh and his team are the first company I've encountered that gets it and has impressed me that they get it and they have a vision that's very compatible with my own. Um, 
they're going to be the first entrant in this space. Eventually, it's going to be a space race. This will be huge. Probably what happens is eventually Abex gets, you know, acquired by somebody much better healed that's, you know, ready to spend billions doing this. Or maybe they'll see it through to the end like like uh, Bezos did and be the only ones doing it. I don't know. Er- Eric. When does uh, when does the stock uh, start trading? Uh, what's the, the symbol going to be? Uh, it's going to trade on the TSX on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The symbol will be ABXX. That's two X's because Barrick Gold is ABX, so it's not ABX. It's ABXX. Think of it as X-rated Barrick Gold. So, um, it'll be interesting, so- <laughs> and, and this is going to be. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it does because my first thought and you'll hear this when you hear the um the interview with robert friedland i was thinking that nothing really happens when the stock starts trading because frankly they're all they're talking about is the thermostat i mean i I just told you my vision of where this is headed um i'm you know an ex-software architect turned futures trader there's not a lot of people that have that combination of background to see what i see here and I figured it would be a long time before anybody figured this out. Uh, when I talked to Robert Friedland, he says he thinks it's going to take off right away because other people will see it. I was betting on not. Now, what kind of surprised me is they just on Monday this week, on the 23rd, they approved the reverse merger. And the reverse merger is actually an interesting story. It's with uh, New Millennium Iron, which was a junior uh, mining company in Canada, kind of defunct. It was at risk of being delisted by the TSX for not enough activity. So the way a SPAC normally works is you basically buy a shell company that that is already publicly listed, and you just get the company with no assets. They ended up getting a huge uh, iron ore deposit in Quebec and Labrador for free. And they're kind of like, okay, well, we weren't counting on that, but we'll take it. So I, I'm not, I don't think that's really material to uh, the investment prospects. But they, they ended up uh, being acquired into this company. Now, New Millennium Iron, NML.to, has been up crazy in the last few days, probably on anticipation of this shareholder meeting that was today. So it seems like the stock is really active. And I don't know enough about this. I don't know if like merger ARB guys are just following all of the, the, the mergers and don't really know the fundamentals or if somebody's really hot on this. But one way or another, New Millennium Iron, which is the way you can buy the stock now that's going to get merged, eventually will become ABXX, is trading quite actively. So I'm not sure what to make of that. So, Eric, in your mind, uh, what's the trade here? Is, or is it a trade at all? Like, Is this a more of like a long-term buy-and-hold investment for you? What, what's your thinking of how this plays out? For me, it's very much a long-term buy-and-hold. I think of this like buying Amazon in 1998. You know, There were all kinds of ups and downs, and if you bought it and hold it for 20 years, you did incredibly well. Um, I think that these guys are maybe going to really redefine how commodity futures and eventually other markets work. And I think it's just really exciting. Um, I didn't think that there was a short-term trade because I didn't think most people would get it. Now, as I look at the action in the reverse merger company, which is New Millennium Iron, um, it is pretty active. And I don't know if I don't know enough about these reverse mergers, if they're just always active because there's merger ARP guys that are all over them or, or how this works. But there's a lot of activity in the stock in the last um, 
few days. So I'm planning to buy more when it starts trading. Uh, December 15th is the target uh, trading date under the symbol ABXX. Um, frankly, I was hoping that what would happen is that it would move down a little bit initially because we figure there's going to be a bunch of angel investors. I was in the, the last capital raise round. The first round guys were Kyle Bass and, and uh, Robert Friedland and those guys got in. They've got a huge profit built up because they were in at a much lower uh, initial price. I was thinking that a lot of those guys, just as a matter of discipline, you know, they, they sell enough, what people call a free ride trade, where they sell enough to get back their original investment. So the rest of it is basically a no risk, just ride it and see where it goes kind of thing. I was hoping the original angels would be selling at least some of their positions as soon as it started trading, because I want to, I, I didn't get as big of a position as I would have liked to in the angel round. Um, I'm losing confidence in that view, though, as I see what's happening already in uh, NML, which is the uh, the company that's reverse merging into it. I should be. I want to make sure we're careful too. If anybody listening is not a professional trader, please be very careful. You don't want to just go buy NML. Uh, because it is going to turn into ABXX later. First of all, there's a one for 12 consolidation. So you're going to have to buy 12 shares of NML to get one share of ABXX. But more importantly, this is a tiny little 38 million uh, market cap, essentially defunct little company. So if you don't know how to trade illiquid issues using limit orders carefully, uh, don't chase the stock because you, you, know, you could easily uh, chase the price up substantially just by throwing money at it. So if, if, if what I just said doesn't make sense to you and you're not familiar with that kind of trading, leave the NML stuff to the pros. Wait until uh, ABXX is trading around December 15th. For pro traders who know about illiquid instruments, you know you can buy NML.to now. Um, it's, it's very illiquid, but it seems to have picked up dramatically on the news of the, uh, the shareholder meeting. So I'm not sure how to interpret that. So, Eric, uh, when you do a reverse merger, there's going to be a certain amount that's held by the existing shareholders of NML, and then the rest will be held by the existing holders of ABEX. Why don't you walk us through what proration that'll be done and kind of give us a little sense of the financials from that perspective? Yeah, NML.to, which is New Millennium Iron Company or, or Iron Corporation, will become 18% of ABXX. And the other 82% of ABXX will be the uh, current ABEX shareholders, myself included. Uh, so presumably, uh, I'm hoping at least a few of those early angels are going to cash out or free ride on, on some of their stock, and there'll be some to buy. The, the thing that that's frustrating to me is because Josh doesn't want to dilute his own shares. There is no capital raise. So you can't, you know, you can't throw lots of money at this and chase it. You could chase the, the stock price pretty easily. It's a fairly small issue. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out, and I would welcome any ideas that you guys have as to how to trade this. I was originally thinking there was a good chance of a dip in the price after it starts trading as some of the early angels get liquidity and it's there, you know, it's the people call it an overhang. There's the the guys that had restricted stock, finally they're allowed to sell it and they start selling it. The thing is, I know I'm in a way I'm one of those guys and I don't want to sell it. I want to buy more. There may be more of them that want to buy more. So I, I'm not sure uh, on such a, you know, with the, such a small public float where this is going to go, but we'll see what happens, I guess, on uh, the 15th of December. 
Eric, that's a fascinating story. I, I really want to thank you for coming on our show and, and sharing it with our listeners. We're going to all be watching very closely in the next coming weeks and more than that in the next coming years as a lot of this technology and this groundbreaking kind of different way of thinking about how exchanges and how trading works. So I just want to say thank you very much for coming on our show. Well, thank you, Kevin. And I want to stress too, I have no idea, you know, the, this merger acquisition, what happens to the acquiring company and the reverse merger target, you know, how, how do the tr shares trade between now and the day that ABXX starts trading? I frankly have no clue. What I can tell you is five years from now, I expect it to be a whole <laughs> lot more valuable than it is now. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Eric.